Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton, president of Ultra Clean Corporation and a diligent student of the Bible. Our reader is We Hold These Truths faithful volunteer and dramatist Leslie Fort. Thanks for joining in our quest. In today's Christ Followers Bible study, we're in Acts chapter 18. We'll be starting at verse 1, and as we like to do, we'll open with a word of prayer. Chuck, please. Thank you, Lord, for uh, our hour together here and the message we're going to receive from Mark, who is so diligent and prepared and delivers such a meaningful message each time. So we thank you in advance for that, Lord in confidence that that's going to happen. And we thank you also for the events that are rewarding us for our efforts, not uh, in earthly rewards, but in satisfaction and comfort that we have from uh, knowing that someone is listening. And we thank you for those who are listening tonight and may they be blessed by this message from Mark Horton from the book of Acts. Amen. Amen. Thank you. And welcome once again, Mark. Well, it's always a great treat to uh, get to examine these things with y'all and uh, look at the confusion in the religious world today as contrasted to the very relatively simple story of God's plan that we find in the uh, in the Bible. All right. We are ready to begin uh, Acts chapter 18, and we have seen Paul and Silas and Luke and Timothy uh, working their way southwest uh, through Macedonia and now into uh, Achaia, the lower part of Greece, Macedonia being the upper part of modern-day Greece, Achaia being the lower part, and we had finished with Paul being kind of left in Athens for a while to pull his heels. And let's just pick right up here with our reading uh, verses uh, 1 through 4 of chapter 18, please. After these things, he left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius, had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Great. Thank you, Leslie. Uh, we, we spoke a little last time about the... Well, no, I guess that was uh, off the recording afterwards uh corinth was located in a very 
a commercially uh, viable spot where the Peloponnese, the, the big peninsula that's the uh, southwesternmost part of Greece, necks down to just a neck that's a few miles in width. And they originally hauled ships over this little isthmus on log rollers, and then later they dug a canal across it. And Corinth was located there, and there, it had uh, two seaports as suburbs, one on the western side of the isthmus and one on the eastern side. That that was Sencrea on the eastern side. And there was, a, we know later, one of the, a separate church met in Sencrea that's mentioned in one of Paul's letters. So it, it was a very, very strategic location. Ships that came through the canal there could cut uh, several days off of a journey to or from Italy proper to points east, Turkey, Cyprus, uh, Egypt, and so on. It had been, uh, as a city, utterly destroyed in 146 B.C. for revolting against Roman rule. And it lay abandoned for about a hundred years. Julius Caesar reestablished the city in 44 BC and gave it the status of a Roman colony. So that the people that lived there then were Roman citizens, just like Paul, uh, because Tarsus was also a Roman colony. And in 27 BC, it had become the capital of administration for the Roman province of Achaia. Uh, Corinth had been noted in antiquity for sexual license and immorality, and with the regaining of its uh, commercial prosperity, it also regained something of its old reputation for uh, flagrant uh, immorality and sexual misconduct. And we can see this in Paul's letters uh, to the Christians there. They they had difficulty in leaving behind the sexual conduct that had become commonplace uh, in that area. But in spite of, of this particular background, when Paul got there, he uh, found a place that was conducive, or at least better suited than Athens, for the kind of work that he was going to do. And he ends up staying there. We'll find out uh, about a year and a half. Now, he runs here into Aquila and Priscilla. I think this is the last time that when the couple are mentioned that the husband's name will be mentioned first. Priscilla becomes mentioned first out of the pair, usually when they're mentioned after this. They had been living in Rome, and they're some kind of a disturbance, and Emperor Claudius issued an edict expelling some Judeans from Rome, apparently. There's a lot of confusion on this and speculation amongst historians because they can tell that not all the Judeans left Rome, but some did, and uh, it lasted a few years, and then they were able to go back. There is some evidence. Uh, there was a Roman account written about 70 years later that attributed this the notice of eviction 
to a troublemaker named Christus. And writing 70 years later from a pagan viewpoint, this Roman historian could very well have misunderstood the fact that the Christ followers had reached Rome and that some of the synagogue communities of the Judeans became embroiled in controversy and disputation and whatnot. And so we don't know this for sure, but there, there's, we do know that it is a fact that Christians reached Rome before Paul, the apostle to the nations, actually got there, and that this caused some great problems for Paul, and these problems were the cause of him writing his letter to the Romans, as we commonly refer to it. The whole context of this Roman letter it, which is addressed to the Gentile Christians of Rome, is that they not exercise their Christian liberty to the point that they offend the synagogue communities of Judeans because, as Paul writes to them, God still has a righteous remnant in physical Israel, and they they deserve every opportunity to hear the gospel with an open mind before they're utterly destroyed and it's utterly too late. And this is really the underlying tension in Paul's letter there to Rome. So there's a reasonably good possibility that Aquila and Priscilla were Christians before they came to Corinth because Paul in none of his letters ever talks about their conversion uh, or that he nurtured them or anything like that. There's a good possibility that they were Christians in one of these troubled synagogues of Rome that was having all these issues between the unbelieving Judeans and the believing God-fearing Gentiles and Judeans and uh, were expelled as a result of that. It was convenient also that in addition to being believing Judeans, they also followed the same trade as Paul, uh, being a tent maker, as it's uh, commonly translated. This is, it's probably a more generic trade than that. It would be someone who worked in heavy materials like canvas and leather, or there was even a woven goat skin that was very popular in the area around Tarsus, that was in use uh, in the first century for all types of waterproof coverings, um, rain cloaks and tents and things like that made out of this uh, woven goat hair that shed water. So the Aquila and Priscilla and Saul would have uh, been workers in heavy materials as opposed to tailors who worked in lighter weight materials. And this is also interesting because as a trained Pharisaic rabbi, uh, Saul, we wonder why he would be a tent maker, but it does actually make sense because rabbis were taught not to take any money for teaching the law of God. And it was the concept of taking money for doing it was actually repulsive to them. We have several ancient writings that point this out. 
Let me see if I can find one here. No, I can't find that quota. I'm sorry, but anyway, nearly every trained rabbi was also trained in a trade to support himself, and the teaching of the Word of God had to be on their own time, so to speak, after they had made their living. All right. There was a large synagogue community in Corinth, apparently. It was a great center of commerce with strategic location. And so Paul was able to use his normal procedure of going and joining himself to the local synagogue community of God's people, where they were open enough, of course, to allow visitors to speak uh, every Saturday when they gathered together. And he uh, used this opportunity to, to proclaim the gospel. There's uh, uh, the, the um, like the Codex Sinaiticus, the early Greek manuscripts that the Catholic Church kind of latched onto that were not used by the King James translators. They add some interesting notes in some of these verses that are translated, like he discoursed in the synagogue every Sabbath, speaking persuasively to both Jews and Greeks. This is amplified in some of these older manuscripts to say, he entered into the synagogue every Sabbath and held discourse, inserting the name of the Lord Jesus and speaking persuasively not only to the Judeans, but also to the Greeks. So it's amplified a little bit there. And that in and we can assume from this, if in fact is original, that he's reading from the Hebrew scriptures and showing how they all point to Jesus. And we we know that he did this, whether or not that's the proper uh, translation of verse four or not, because we see him doing it. Uh, all through the book of Acts and all through his letters. And again, we so sad that so many of our friends and family are all caught up with the uh, Hebrew scriptures pointing towards a restored physical nation of Israel in the Middle East <laughs> because we see all of these New Testament writers showing over and over and over again that all of the scriptures are focused on Jesus Christ, not on some still-to-be-fulfilled uh, physical kingdom on earth or anything of the nature here. So, anyway, he's he's showing them how all of their scriptures speak persuasively of Jesus Christ. Anyway, you read uh, verse 4 here. And then also in verse 4 we're reminded that there, as in all of these synagogue communities, there is a large population, probably way exceeding the number of Judeans, of people of other nationalities who have joined themselves to the synagogue community to learn about the true God of Israel who stands out as far superior to the pagan gods of all of these other nations that were part of the Roman Empire at this time. All right, any other thoughts and comments then on the first um, four verses of chapter 18? 
All right, well, let's continue then and read verses 5 through 11, please. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. And when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads, I am clean. From now on I shall go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there and went to the house of a certain man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God, whose house was next to the synagogue. And Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. And he settled there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. All right, great, thank you. Now, Paul is set up uh, working day by day in his trade with Aquila and Priscilla. And then on the weekly Saturday gatherings, you know, he's taken advantage of that. But we notice a change here in verse 5 because it says, When Silas and Timothy came back from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself to preaching. Well, this is kind of interesting when you put this all together. But recall that back in Philippi, the first family really mentioned is the household of Lydia. And she was a seller of purple. And obviously then quite wealthy. And we see from Paul's letters that the Christians in Philippi sent to his needs over and over again. And we put all that together and we can deduce with a high level of confidence that Silas and Timothy brought with them funds that the Philippians had put together to send to Paul. So he's able to take a break from the leather work, canvas work, and devote himself to preaching because of the support money that Silas and Timothy bring with them from Macedonia. And so now instead of being two to three hours a week, now he's able to cause lots of trouble <laughs> there in, in Corinth. He, he can devote himself to preaching. And he's going here to the Judeans. He is now pushing this. He's been gently suggesting it every week. And now he's really driving home that if all of these predictions were made concerned Jesus of Nazareth, that they had better accept him as their king and Messiah while they still could. And so he's, he's apparently pressing this very firmly 
and he gets a strong reaction in verse 6. They oppose him and revile him. And this is not the God-fearers in the synagogues, but it is specifically the Judeans in the synagogue. And he goes to this uh, really strong demonstration by shaking out his clothes. He doesn't even want the dust of this assembly of Israel on his clothes anymore. And, I mean, he gives them a very politically incorrect message here. <laughs> You're, yeah, I mean, it's, it's not good. Your blood be on your own heads. I am clear of it. From now on, I will go to the other nations. And so... He actually quits the synagogue, and, and we don't think this happened in too many places. We think that the believers continued to operate as subgroups within the synagogues in most of these cities throughout the empire. But here in Corinth, we see a division here uh, fairly early on, and he, go, he just goes one door away to the house next door, who's not Judean, it's a God-fearer. That's specifically a non-Judean who has been studying uh, the Hebrew Scriptures. But he had a house right next door to the synagogue. And the good news is the ruler of the synagogue, who, is, who would have been a Judean, with all of his household, became believers. And also many of the Corinthians, which again by inference, these would be the non-Judeans, believed and were baptized. So, well, again, we see this pattern over and over. There is a righteous remnant within the Judean community of these cities that's very small compared to all of the Judeans in the community normally, but that they have been teaching an outer circle of non-Judean people who are totally prepared for the gospel. And this outer circle are the ones who are so excited because now they, they are, uh, by baptism, they can become a citizen in equal standing with a Judean male in God's restored Israel. And so th this is a message that is so exciting. We saw... Back in Acts 13 in Antioch uh, in Pisidia where the whole town turned out and were rejoicing over this invitation to open the gates of God's kingdom to allow all peoples of all nationalities to enter in without submitting to the law of Moses or circumcision. Um, they could come as they were and become adopted children of God, royalty of the highest order in the spiritual kingdom of Israel. So here we see the same thing, that many of the Corinthians, as they listened, believed and were immersed or baptized. And Paul receives uh, this message from the Lord Jesus uh, by night to not be afraid to speak out boldly because... Christ is going to be with him and protect him, and no assailant will do you any harm. I have many people in this city. Mark, I have a question. Is, yeah. yeah. Uh, with, uh, on this Christmas, 
it says he's the ruler of the synagogue. Does that mean he's a rabbi, or is, it, is that an administrative uh, job, or it must have been a larger synagogue? We well, don't know. Yeah, it, it would have been a larger synagogue, and we have to understand this is this really interesting work done by this scholar, Mark David Nanos, who I've probably mentioned a few times before, who is a, uh, he attends a reform synagogue here in the United States, <laughs> but but I think he has to be a believer in Jesus of Nazareth as God's Messiah from reading his writings, but he's done some amazing work. He's considered one of the foremost scholars on the life as a first century Judean or Christian. Of course, he calls them Jews, but he has remarkable insight into the uh, affairs and the lives and activities of the of these communities in the first century. And in his books, he points out that, and I think we've mentioned this before, the synagogues were far more than just clubs to read the scriptures, which was their primary purpose. But Rome had a brilliant way of administering civil government. They delegated it to uh, non-governmental groups. And they didn't have armed police on every corner. They had no military presence within Roman cities. But the Roman law, administration of the law, was delegated to these civic clubs and guilds that attained a certain level of acceptance and stability. And the Judean communities had been granted this by Julius Caesar. So they had been recognized as official organizations. And so just like the Silversmiths Guild would be recognized uh, or, or this or that, the Judean synagogue communities in the Roman cities were recognized this way. So this ruler of the synagogue would not have just been the, the, the rabbi who was most schooled in the Law of Moses. It would have been the one who was chosen by the community to be their interface with the Roman government. He was the one that was entrusted with making sure that all of the synagogue members followed Roman law. And if any of them violated it, he would be the judge. He would pass sentence on them and uh, order them to be beaten. This was the typical corporal punishment that was delegated down all the way to these civic organizations. So there were three different titles usually associated with the with these synagogues in the, in the Roman world and uh, ruler would be the top man as far but but he wasn't just the the top teacher he may not have even been the main teacher but he was the administrative head of the group as far as the Roman administration was concerned but that that's an excellent question thanks mark yes so again, he obviously he would be the most prominent member of the uh, of the assembly there, and so when he and his household defected, so to speak, that would give them automatically the believers uh, an automatic respectability with the Roman authorities, and we'll see how that plays out. And also, of course, it should really slap the Judeans in the face and say, "Wow, well maybe we need to pay attention to this." But anyway, most of them, of course, ignored it to their own peril and, and eventual destruction. 
And anyway, he was able to remain there for 18 months uh, teaching amongst them. So the fact that they were able to split off may have meant that by this time Paul had amassed a complete set of scrolls of the Hebrew Scriptures that he was able to just carry around with him. You know, he mentions the scrolls in his second letter to Timothy, which was written much later, shortly before his death. But uh, that would have been a really key milestone that would have had to have been met before any community of believers could have completely separated from the Judean synagogue community would be whether or not they could get access to an alternate set of scrolls of the of the scriptures. All right, well, let's read uh, 12 through 17, please. But while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat, saying, This man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrong or of vicious crime, O Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. But if there are questions about words and names and your own law, look after it yourselves. I am unwilling to be a judge of these matters. And he drove them away from the judgment seat. And they all took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and began beating him in front of the judgment seat. And Gallio was not concerned about any of these things. All right, thank you. We are introduced here to Gallio. This is an event that took place sometime during the 18 months, but not, interestingly, at the very end of the 18 months that Paul is there. But during this 18 months, at some point, the unbelieving Judeans made a concerted attack on Paul. Now, being the proconsul of Achaia, this would have been one of the most important provinces in the Roman Empire. And, and Gallio was a very highly placed in, in Roman administration. He was the son of the elder Seneca, the famous uh, uh, rhetorician or speaker. And his brother was also named Seneca, one of the most famous Stoic philosophers of the first century. He was adopted by another famous speaker, Lucius Junius Gallio, and, and used the name of his adoptive father. His real father uh, died in AD 40, and so he was probably adopted uh, after that passing. He has a lot of records about him uh, that have survived. He was uh, a man of great personal charm, and he was noted for being pleasant to everyone that he came in contact with. He had had a high position in Rome itself before being appointed proconsul uh, in Achaia. And we have really good dating. We know that he he began this office in Corinth in the summer of the year 51. And we know that he was uh, 
executed by Nero in the year 65 with many other members of his family, very similar to what Stalin did in the 1930s in Soviet Russia, (laughs) purging anyone. Nero, of course, became super paranoid that everyone was out to get him and that everyone hated him, and he had probably good reason (laughs) to to, uh, suspect all of that. So anyway, Gallio is uh, well known to history, and he he was uh, very favorably judged by most who wrote of him. So this is a man that, you know, is not morally suspect like some of the guys we find over in Judea in Roman office, and that we'll meet a little bit later in the book of Acts. Even Pontius Pilate had a dubious moral history before he got to uh, Palestine. Gallio, though, is an exemplary character from Roman history. And how does he react to these incitements and backbiting of these Judeans? He, he's absolutely disgusted by it. They lay these charges against Paul, and Paul was just about to defend himself when Gallio just interrupts and says, Listen, you Judeans. These disputes are about words and names from your own law, so see to it yourselves. I'm not going to be a judge of such things. And and he drove them all from the tribunal. So again, we see how this fits so beautifully with the work of Nanos that I mentioned earlier, showing how that these, you know, Rome didn't want their courts to be backed up for six or eight years or whatever it is in the U.S. today. They expected these clubs and civic groups to take care of all of these things internally and not burden the Roman court system with these matters that were internal within these sub-communities within the Roman cities. And so he's absolutely appalled that this has even reached him. It totally violates the charter of the synagogue that they're supposed to resolve all of these things internally. And he just says, you know, look to this yourselves. I'm not going to be a judge of such things. And he drove them out of the tribunal. And, you know, obviously with a strong sense of disgust. And the result of this is that the the man that took over the synagogue community after Crispus, who had become a believer, and, uh, yeah, we we know that Paul even personally immersed uh, Crispus, because that's mentioned in uh, the first Corinthian letter. But uh, he, he left that office and was replaced by this guy, Sosthenes. And the, uh, the non-Judeans are so aroused by Gallio's uh, dismissal of these Judean charges that they grab this guy, Sosthenes, who's probably presenting the charges, and they beat him up right there in the courtroom. <laughs> <laughs> And Gallio just ignored it. So the Judeans are making themselves odious to God, and they're making themselves odious to the people of Rome throughout the empire. And neither is a good thing (laughs) to do. Neither is very wise. And, of course, just a few years later, we'll see the end result of making yourself Number one, the enemy of God, and then making yourselves the enemy of the world power 
that surrounds you, the consequences would not be pleasant. So this is a little preview of that. And we also see in this action the fulfillment of the promise that Christ had given Paul there personally to not be afraid to speak and not be silent. Uh, and I have many people in the city. I mean, even Gallio was favorably disposed towards the Christians and Paul and unfavorably disposed towards the Judean opposition here. So the promise is paid out. And if you look at the other hand, had someone so high up in the Roman government issued a strong condemnation of the gospel and of what Paul was teaching, it would have had far more negative impact on Paul's mission and the gospel than anything imaginable that would have happened to date. Having something bad said in Palestine, which is kind of a backwater of the Roman Empire, that's nothing compared to having the proconsul of Achaia you know, make a negative pronouncement. So the fact that someone that is, I mean, we're talking one of the, maybe the top ten officials of the entire Roman Empire to so soundly thrash the, the Judeans and by so doing exonerate the Christians, you see, this is a, this is a really big deal. All right, so any other comments on these verses? Gallio just really drew the lines. It really impresses me how he just laid down the law before these people who were nitpicking, really, over Paul. Uh, yeah, that that's very much the case. And and again, this, you know, in the, in the last 100 years in America, Christians have been told over and over again that the early Christians were persecuted by Rome and not by Jews because they were great people that it was Rome that's, you know, the evil beast and everything. And, you know, that's just not what we find in the Bible. Yes, there will be a short period under Nero where that does happen, where the two forces are allied instead of being at each other's threat. But we see that for the bulk of the lives of the apostles, Rome is the protector of the gospel against the constant background of Judean persecution. And this is what we have seen again here in Corinth in Acts chapter 18. All right, well, let's, uh, we'll just get started here in Ephesus. Let's go ahead and read uh, 18 through 21, please. And Paul, having remained many days longer, took leave of the brethren and put out to sea for Syria. And with him were Priscilla and Aquila. In Centria he had his hair cut, for he was keeping a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. Now he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay for a longer time, he did not consent. But taking leave of them and saying, I will return to you again if God wills, he set sail from Ephesus. All right, so Paul spent many more days in 
Corinth after the this little episode with Gallio. It, w- it was in the middle of the 18 months, not at the end. But then on his own time, not on the Judean opposition's time frame, he does decide to leave and go back to Syria. Remember the the assembly of God's people in Antioch in Syria are the ones who have sent out Paul and Silas, and before that, Paul and Barnabas, and they're they're really the the sponsoring church or assembly uh, who made these trips possible. So he's he's wanting to head back that way to report uh, on progress to them. And he's got his new friends and co-workers, uh, Priscilla, now mentioned first, and Aquila. And we see here in, in verse 18 that he has his hair cut short being under a vow. And this is a specific reverence to uh, a Nazarite vow, which is part of the law of Moses. And we like to ignore this, but the Judean Christians are going to continue to follow circumcision for their male children. They're going to continue to eat according to the law of Moses. They're going to continue to do these Nazarite vows. They're going to continue to worship at the temple in Jerusalem all the way up until the end of the temple order and the utter destruction of the Judean nation. And and Paul is still doing this. And it's not because their salvation is dependent upon it. They understand that now. But it's because they have a burning passion to reach the righteous remnant within the Judean nation that are still there. And they are going to extreme measures to not offend them or drive them away. And they know that the time is short anyway. So there's no compelling reason for them to abandon their traditions, their customs, the law of Moses, but they're going to continue on with it uh, very faithfully, as Jesus said himself, not one jot and tittle of the law shall pass until all shall be fulfilled. And that all being fulfilled is tied up with the final destruction of the temple and everything uh, around A.D. 70. So, again, a little evidence of that here mixed in with this account. So they they leave uh, and they sail east and land in Ephesus, which is on the western coast of modern-day Turkey, but it was in the Roman province of Asia. This is the area where the Spirit of God had told them to bypass earlier. But this time, he does go there, and Priscilla and Aquila, they get off the boat and stay there. Paul gets off just briefly and goes into the synagogue, presumably on a Saturday, and is able to hold at least one exchange. And there is some interest for him, and they ask him to stay longer, but he says, no, I've got to get on and I will come back to you if God wants me to and and then he uh, continues on with his journey so any other thoughts or comments here down through verse 21 Paul has a definite ministry or, or mission 
And it isn't just to linger in places where he's welcome. He's got a goal there, is he not? Yeah, well, and, that, you know, that's a very good point because we see there's uh, 12 or 13 apostles and 11 or 12 of them are going to Palestinian Jews, Palestinian Judeans, and one is sent to the rest of the world. <laughs> and even that one sent to the rest of the world is going to go to the Judeans first and then to the other nations. And, you know, he's got this incredible mission, and he's got only a few years to get it done in, and yet he can he can confidently linger in Corinth for 18 months, and then he's going to come back to Ephesus and stay there for three years. So God's plan is not for him to, to talk to every person in every little town, but it is to go to these large synagogue communities to immediately find the righteous remnant of Judea and to find a core group of prepared Greek-speaking foreigners who know the scriptures, and he's going to train them to spread the good news of Jesus Christ in the whole greater area. So by going to these major cities and staying there, we'll learn as he's in Ephesus for three years that the news of Jesus Christ is going to spread through the entire province of Asia, even though Paul never left Ephesus as far as we know. Well, Mark, that, uh, that's not so much different than the modern pattern for evangelism and missionaries today. So uh, there is some place that you can get a toehold and get local people to do the teaching. And isn't that pretty much uh, the ongoing pattern of all missions as far as I see it? All missions, yeah. The ones that are successful, I think, yes. All right, good point. Well, um, I think we've had uh, our about as much time as we want to put in one recording. I'll leave that to Tom here. Well, great. No, I think it's a good good place to stop, and we'll look forward to continuing on next week. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for listening. Be sure to tell a friend about our podcast, and please visit our website, whtt.org. You will find a wealth of information and resources like the latest Pharisee Watch and unheralded news articles. Also, you can order our new video, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Even though this video is copyrighted, we don't mind if you copy it as long as you copy all of it. Then you can educate your friends and acquaintances about the dangers of Christian Zionism. Start small, think big, and press on toward the straight gate.